Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to be back in the book of 2 Timothy this, more, uh, this afternoon. If you want to go ahead and turn there with me, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. For anyone using the Bibles provided, you'll find our passage for today on page, I think it's 996. Uh, so very close to the end, you'll see the large number 3 for chapter 3 in 2 Timothy I appreciate all the love and prayers we've been getting during this season. I initially hoped to preach this sermon a little over a month ago, but God had other plans for us uh, because that very week, my wife and I welcomed our second child into the world. Uh, So very thankful indeed. Thank you, thank you. Uh, So we've been adjusting to this new stage of life for sure. You know, things are surely different. Uh, Joanna going to bed no, matter, no longer means like clocking out for the day. We're learning that for all the parents here who have two, three, four. Uh, even simple things like getting the family out to the car is now this big ordeal. It's changed significantly. You know, you wouldn't think getting to the car would be you know, that difficult. And, but here's the thing. Thanks to cicada season last year, Uh, Our daughter is now actually unwilling to walk out to the car on her own two feet. Uh, It's this whole thing now where she will freak out if my wife and I don't carry her out to the car. Sometimes she'll go for letting us hold her hand, but uh, you hope and pray for those occasions. Um, But in the times we try to walk, she sees worms, she sees ants, and it's game over. She freezes, absolutely has no idea how to proceed forward, no matter what we say or do. Uh, Chris actually has a picture of her clinging on to me like a koala bear uh, on a broken tree, like nobody could pull her off. And so if you could just pray for us as we look to endure the daunting 20-foot walk to the car. But um, on that note... You know, it makes me think, how then, if you think of that example, how can we navigate similar circumstances in this life? Like maybe not footsteps out to the driveway to get into the car, but what about maybe in our daily lives, between our conversions and our deaths? What does it look like to navigate the dangers the deceptions, and the disappointments of this world? How are we to persevere through life's many challenges and challengers and circumstances? What is our path forward, step by step, day by day, year by year in our pilgrimage to heaven? Well, we're continuing on in our series through 2 Timothy Uh, Truly, I think the title of this series, A Guide for Faithfulness, is exactly what Paul has in mind in penning this book of the Bible. He's providing Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith, with a blueprint for faithfulness. And so we saw in chapter one, way back, I think it was the beginning of this year, uh, maybe end of last year, that the first item on Timothy's playbook for faithfulness is to guard God's truth with all that he has. So if you're taking notes, remembering, remember guard. And then in chapter two, the imperative switches from guard to entrust. And if you remember, I compared this to kind of going back and forth between offense and defense for the sake of the gospel. And so with those uh, two ideas in mind, guarding and entrusting defense and offense, Well, we now need to ask, well, why is chapter three here? Well, maybe could we just skip it? And I think the answer is, of course, no. And today I'm going to make the case that if chapter one is about offense and defense, then chapter three is about perseverance. And I get that from verse 14. If you want to look with me right there, it's also on the front of your bulletins. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So guard and trust now continue. Or in other words, it's one thing to strategize, church. It's one thing to game plan and to practice. 
And it's a whole other thing to actually implement it against your opponent. To implement it, to, to persevere in it, to continue down the right track in our daily lives. So it's moving like from the locker room out onto the field or onto the court, all right? And what chapter three does is it gives the Christian church in their pursuit of faithfulness like a sneak peek into the minds and the actions of those who would actually seek their downfall in life and in their pilgrimage to heaven. So as we now enter into the second half of essentially the Apostle Paul's final words before being put to death, Let's go ahead and read chapter 3 together now. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So church, with the imperatives of guard and entrust on our minds and now continue, the question now becomes, how do we do so faithfully in 2 Timothy? And well, today we're going to look at this through three simple points. And these three simple points are actually the only three, again, imperatives you'll find in this passage. Can you spot them? Understand, avoid, and continue. So point number one, understand. That's verse one through verse five. Point number two, avoid. That's verse six through verse Nine, and point number three, continue. That's verse 10 through verse 17. Understand your surroundings, avoid the hazards, and continue in what you have learned. The image I want you to think of is like Joanna. You're you're Joanna walking from that house to the car, and you encounter those bugs and ants and, and bees of the world. And what you need to do to understand and avoid in order to continue and actually make it to where you're trying to go. All right, so point number one, understand. Look with me at verse one. Paul writes, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So our first thought right here is understand this. Right here, Paul is saying, listen up, church. You need to get this. Times of difficulty are coming. Privileged Christianity will not be a thing. In the last days, difficulty 
is coming. The original word here for last days comes from the word eschatos, which also happens to be where we get our word eschatology, which also happens to be where Pastor James gets his Instagram, uh, Instagram handle. Uh, it means the end times, the last days. And we see in other places in the New Testament that those end times, those last days are now. They're not this like distant seven-year period where Christians suddenly disappear on planes. No, the New Testament teaches that the last times have already been ushered in with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, nothing else needs to happen for Christ to return. His return is imminent according to his will and his timing. The apostle Peter wanted to make this clear when he wrote to the church in his final letter. He said, to not uh, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And he adds that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, he says. And so for everyone here today, do you believe this? Truly, do you believe this? That we are in the last days right now. Now, right this very moment, that nothing else needs to happen for Christ to return. That you will not receive an email or a text message that says, hello, this notification serves you to remind you of your in-person appointment with the Lord Jesus tomorrow. Here we are, friends, standing in the last days where any moment the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it, yours and mine and everyone's, will be fully exposed. Don't believe me? Let's read on. Look at verse two. Verse two says for, or in other words, because. So verse two onward is looking to prove the statement in verse one. It says for, People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. So we have quite the list there, don't we? Uh, And we're not even a full verse in. Let's take a look right there at the first one, right out of the gate. Lovers of self. Is there a better way to describe this generation? I mean, come on, let's, let's be real. We see it everywhere. What are some of those popular things today? I was just talking with a couple of you earlier on this. This personality tests, for example. Now, to be clear, before, I throw ja- before everyone throws javelins at me, I am not anti-Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or what animal are you or any of the likes. Uh, but I can say it's not very hard to have a successful product or business model that tells people who are already obsessed with themselves more about themselves. And to do so ever so slightly vague enough to the point where it's like, oh my goodness, this is reading right into my soul. It's the same reason we also see massive, you know, even in our churches, for example, massive marketing machine churches that get more and more massive because what you'll find And if you ever visit them is, you know, like as you walk through those doors, like a functional figurative banner that doesn't say Jesus is king here, says the customer is always right here. And some of you might be rightly thinking, well, okay, wait a minute, but hasn't humanity always been this way? How is the statement that people will be lovers of self in the last days any different from all of human history? To which I would say, I think that's an excellent observation, and in one sense, I completely agree. But in another sense, there's something uniquely 
uh, um, how do I put it, particularly unique about right now in this point of history where it's like uniquely celebrated, uniquely shameless. Carl Truman, a brilliant historian and uh, a scholar, he documents this rise of self-absorption exceptionally well in his recent book. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Excellent, excellent, excellent book. Would highly recommend it. Uh, if you're ever wondering how did we actually get here culturally or if you have friends or family you know, that seem to be you know, getting eaten alive by the storm of what's going on today, um, pick it up, give it a read. Better yet, I might even suggest there's an abridged version of it. We have it in the, the book cart. It's called um, Strange New World. Uh, excellent book, would highly recommend. But Truman notes that the modern, and pay close attention here, the modern development of self has a renewed, amplified, and evolved focus on inwardness and on our inward moral source and on our inward and subjective psychology and how particularly the advancement of technology here in this century has allowed us to virtually bypass kind of just the way the world is and really just gives us this sense of power to achieve new heights and I might add new levels of depravity in essentially conforming the world to us rather than conforming to just the way things are. It kind of gives us, you know, think of technology as like this hallucinogen that not only distracts us from the most important things in life, but also tricks us into thinking we actually have far more self-determination and sovereignty than we actually do. And so we've become so obsessed with ourselves that the self now governs our societies and institutions in just about every single way. And as a result... What we see is that just about everything seems to exist now for our own sense of self-formation and self-exaltation. Think of our educational institutions. Think of social media. Even, like I've said, some of our churches. And Truman makes clear, ultimately, what this is. So if you're going to boil this down to one thing, friends, it's an identity revolution. It's an identity revolution against God. It's the idea of saying, you will not rule over me. You will not tell me who I am. You will not tell me how to live. You will not tell me what's best for me. I don't need you. I need me. And at the end of the day, humanity exchanges a truth for a lie. Here's one example for you. I have one employee at my full-time job, love her, but every week she will post a new motivational message uh, across our entire organization about the wellness and the wholeness of our internal selves. Here's a recent one advocating for what's called the practice of self-love and a daily affirmation. Ready? Self-love is the appreciation or positive regard for one's own worth, happiness, and virtue. If you're going through a tough season, remember that you are the main character in your life and should live life accordingly. No one will have your back like you will. If you want to make the world a happier and kinder place, be like MJ and start with the person in the mirror. You deserve to speak kind words onto yourself. You deserve to manifest your own happiness. Now, I could spend an entire sermon series on this, but for the sake of time, we must move on. But let me just say, to qualify it, by no means am I saying that taking care of yourself is you know, some kind of dishonorable trait. I'm not saying that. So if that's what you're hearing, no, that's not what I mean. This, there is surely a right time and place and emphasis for doing so, and we're called to be good stewards of ourselves, right? But let me just ask you this, okay? Who determines your worth? Is it you? Who has your back at all times, like any other? 
Is it you? Who has the ability to truly manifest your happiness each day? You? And finally, who possesses the power and the ability to be the solution to the problems, the challenges, and the brokenness and sin in your life? Is it really you? I think time and experience will probably tell us all very clearly if we're honest. That deep down, none of that is true. That's being sold a bill of goods when it's actually just a lie. And we don't just learn that from time and experience, friends, but also, most importantly, from God himself in his word. You see, God created you. He created me. He created everything in existence. And he created us in his very image that our identities might be found in him and with him, not separate and apart from him. But we said, no, thank you. And ever since have radically and increasingly sought to define ourselves and live life apart from God. That's called sin. That's called idolatry. That's called rebellion. And as a result, God gives us exactly what we ask for in the form of, listen, not just physical death, which separates us from all things of God in his creation, but eternal spiritual death, which separates us from God himself forever. And because we've all chosen ourselves and our own ways rather than God's, he will hold us accountable. That face-to-face appointment I was talking about earlier, that is guaranteed. That is graven into the calendars of yours and my existence. And the day is coming when we will all get what is coming for us as a result of our sin. But God, in his great mercy, friends, sought to restore our relationship with him and reconcile his people unto himself forever, which is why he himself, God the Son, Jesus incarnated or entered into his creation to live a life of perfection or of an identity that was fully one with the Father, not separate. And that's why Jesus had to die, friends, to pay the payment that was coming due for us and cancel that debt of sin on our behalf. And then he rose again to show us that he had defeated death once for all who would turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in him. That where he was going, they might also be. That where he was going, we might also be. Amen? And so do you believe this today? Will you believe this today? If not, as Pastor James says, why not? And if you have an answer to that, I would love to talk to you at the door outside after service. I will be back there. Pastor James will be there. Philip will be there. Would love to hear why not. And I mean that with all sincerity. So then moving on then from about 7% of the way through this passage, uh, what we're going to do is take each of these items relatively quickly Uh, Because I believe actually all of these things are symptomatic of the greatest issue at hand, which is first and foremost, the love of self over the love of God and of others. So we see the next one, if you look down, we see the next one being lovers of money. I'm not sure how in depth we need to go on this one. After all, money is mere medication to the sickness of the human condition, not medication that actually heals, just medication that numbs. And in the same way, technology gives us a false sense of self-determination and sovereignty that we don't really have, well, so does money. In our attempts to chase down identities which are apart from God, money often serves as the primary means for being able to do that. I said in a sermon last year how at the end of the day, it's remarkable what people will say, do, or believe, or promote so long as it impacts their bottom line and inflates their bank accounts. 
and how you can get the people of this world to basically say just about anything as long as it benefits them financially. Which is why Jesus spoke out against greed so much in his ministry. It's because newsflash, this world is disgustingly greedy and corrupt. Just take a look at the net worth of the politicians we keep electing. The increasingly tremendous wealth disparity in our nation. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And these next ones in verse two, I think compound into it, build off of these first two and then compound into each other. Proud, arrogant, abusive. Pride leads to arrogance, leads to abuse. And remember, all of these are rooted in the, the, in the love of self. A sense of self-obsession, get this, leads to a sense of untouchability, which leads inevitably to using and taking advantage of others for the sake of our own selfish gain. Pride, arrogance, abuse. Think of the two greatest scandals in American Christianity over the past few years. The rise and fall of Mars Hill and the demonic details of the sex abuse cover-up in the Southern Baptist Convention. Pride, arrogance, abuse. And then you see next five words which most commentators say can often be grouped together into like a familial group. You see disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, and unappeasable. One reputable historian remarks that, he says, for better or for worse, modern parents are far more sensitive to outside influences than their pre-modern predecessors. Meanwhile, each child's respect for diversity and, of course, self-esteem is diligently cultivated. And all these changes are enforced or encouraged by an array of professionals and agencies. But this comes at a price. Authority is no longer localized in a self-sufficient household. Now, whether we agree with all of this or not, the truth is undoubtedly clear. Children are becoming more and more independent from their parents' authority, guidance, and rule in modern society. In just about every single way, except financially in which case children are actually becoming more dependent on their parents as they get older. A recent study shows that uh, more than half of Americans over the age of 18 are still dependent upon their parents financially in one form or another. And listen to me, well, I'm not saying that is wrong or sinful. Everyone has their own unique situations. Um, Let me just ask you anecdotally, um, do you think that upward trend in dependence financially, also includes an upward trend in gratefulness or sincerity or appreciation? I don't know about you, but my answer would be a hard no. Because what I see, I see entitlement, I see agitation, and I see thanklessness, generally speaking. And so if you're here today, honestly, whether an adult or child, and you're dependent on your parents in one form or another, I just want to challenge you, no matter how imperfect or maybe even undeserving you think they may be, what would it be like to simply say, thank you? I don't deserve this. I'm not entitled to this. Thank you for all the ways you have cared and provided for me. Moving on then to the next seven characteristics which take us more outside of the family and through the end of verse four. Slanderous, basically speaking evil of anyone or anything, unfairly criticizing everything and everyone. And then without self-control, I think you can pair this with the end of verse four where it says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think of Ephesians chapter two where it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we followed the course of the world. So whatever the world said, we did. 
whatever the world prioritized, we prioritized. Carrying out whatever our bodies and minds desired to do. Oh, this looks good. I'm going to do that. This thing is good. I'm going to go and do that. Unhinged, unrestrained, unchecked. We do what we want to do. And we do it brutally. And we do it immorally. And we do it treacherously, if you look at the text. And we do it recklessly. And in our obsession with self, Paul says here that we are swollen with self-conceit. Like when you have an injury and that area kind of blows up or puffs up. That is humanity at all times, everywhere. Swollen with conceit and obsession of self. If only we could find a way, friends, to drain ourselves of our obsession with ourselves. But no, hold on. Look down at verse 5. It says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Well, what on earth does that mean? Appearing godly or holy, but denying its power. On this uh, best-selling Christian author, Dane Orland writes that apparently being a lover of self can actually look a lot sometimes like godliness. Friends, one can use godliness as like a mask to hide that really deep down, they're all about themselves and their desires. Rather than the great power and joy of true satisfaction in true sanctification in Christ. Think of the Pharisees, for example, perfect example in the gospel. And so church, while there's certainly plenty of truth an application we can take from these first five verses when it comes to our own sin and our own lives, and surely we've covered a bunch of those, we must be careful to remember the Apostle Paul's actual aim for believers here. He's not saying, don't be these things in order to persevere. He's saying, understand these things in order to persevere to the end. Understand what's going on around you. Don't be caught off guard or ignorant of it. Understand your cultural landscape. Understand the social media campaigns. Understand the enticing draw towards self-actualization and self-worship. Ultimately, understand that humanity is not the center of the universe. That is going to be how you're going to see what's going on and persevere through it all. You know, um, given obviously the uh, horrific, I don't even have words to describe it, gutting, horrifying wickedness of last week in Texas, uh, the week before in Buffalo, I hesitate to even use this illustration um, but I think it would be helpful. I remember being on a work trip in Dallas several years ago uh, when that Las Vegas mass shooting happened, if you remember. Um, and very similarly, it was difficult to even function the following day or really put thoughts together. Uh, one of my colleagues at the time, his name was Anthony. He was a former Navy SEAL. And I asked him, Anthony, in a situation where gunfire is involved, uh, What's your first move? And he said, the first thing you have to do in any situation involving gunfire, morbid as it is, he said, you have to kind of dip your head and begin tuning in, to, or t- turning and tuning in to exactly where the gunfire is coming from. Because if you don't understand exactly where it's coming from, you run the risk of actually running straight into it. And so friends, on that idea, in order to survive this life and persevere to the end, no matter how long or short the Lord may make our lives. We have to understand what's going on around us or we'll run the risk of running straight into it. I'd be happy to talk with you more after service, uh, but these books that I mentioned would be an excellent start. Point number one, understand. Moving on to point number two now, avoid. That's verses 6 through 9. 
Now, really, Paul here is telling us not to avoid, uh, or not just to avoid what we see in verses six through nine, but he's really telling us to avoid everything in one through nine. That's why at the end he says, avoid such people. Uh, But the reason we're structuring it out this way is after saying, avoid such people, he kind of gives us more specifics in verse six onward, which connect the more general qualities in verse one through five to the more outworking of these qualities, specifically in uh, false teachers and ministry in verses six through nine. And he says, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And so now what does that mean? I think what Paul is saying is that what false teachers do in their ministry is they take advantage of unstable people who are easy to persuade on this doctrine or that doctrine. Really, whatever's hot at any given time in culture. They twist or redistribute or over or underemphasize the truth to prey upon those who are not grounded and are therefore easily influenceable. Easy followers, Easy money, easy ministry. It's like I said last time, in the words of John Piper, what they're doing is they're appealing to people on the basis of what they naturally want or think as natural people. And these, these kind of ministries, these kinds of uh, ministers, they're people who are only in it for themselves, Paul is showing us here. They use people to their own ends. Think of Satan in the garden. Think of the hundred million dollar televangelist. Or as Truman points out, think of the wider cultural phenomena that has unelected wolves and fake religious leaders indoctrinating the next generation that girls can be boys and boys can be girls. They are the world disguised. And it's here in verse 8 that we kind of get a visual aid for this idea in the form of Jonas and Jambres. If you remember the magicians in Egypt during the Exodus, uh, the ones who were tasked with matching and explaining away the plagues of Moses, well, their job was to look just like Moses. But they couldn't have been more different. They were the total opposite with Moses preaching God's truth and Jonathan Jambres being totally opposed to God's truth and therefore seeking to twist it. You see, church, false teachers aren't always going to be as easy to spot as the Joel Osteens of the world. False prophets won't always be pointed out to us like Jonathan Jambres, who the rest of verse 8 says are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the truth. Imposter ministers, as verse 13 would put it, who view ministry as kind of like a get-rich quick scheme or uh, more subtly a career path towards fame and good fortune can be incredibly difficult to identify because they, it says here, are self-deceived as they are deceiving others. But our hope can be found in church nine, uh, in church nine, in verse nine church. It says they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I can't help but think of this, uh, this viral video that went around about, I don't know, eight to ten years ago. Um, it was three pastors sitting around a table where two of them were celebrity pastors with massive churches and unlimited funds. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. Big churches are not necessarily bad. Um, but massive churches with unlimited funds and followings, you know, they were, they were making fun of this other pastor for not going like multi-site and live stream and rah, rah, just more relevant with society in their eyes. And now here we are, like I said, eight to 10 years later, and those two celebrity pastors have been accused of financial improprieties, domineering, abuse, and are now no longer in the ministry while the other pastor maintains a faithful ministry focusing on slow, steady growth and the raising up of pastors. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. And so, church, what are we to do then? 
avoid such people. Understand what's going on and avoid such people. Avoid those who reek of pride and arrogance, who prey upon the vulnerable and who seem to only be in it for themselves. Anyone remember, you know, like the scientific method we learned in elementary school? What was it? Ask a question, do some research, analyze the data. All the doctors inside, don't judge me. Um, Draw a conclusion. Well, through the first nine verses here, we receive a claim about the last nine days, about the last days, right? And what does the data point to? What does your experience tell you? I think it tells us surely we are in the last days. Are you ready for Christ's return? Are you ready for Christ's return? Can you say fully, wholeheartedly, come, Lord Jesus, come? Not after I get married, not after I retire. Not after this and that happens, but come, Lord Jesus, come. Which leads us into our third and final point, continue. Understand, avoid, continue. Verses 10 through 14 read, I'm going to read again. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go on from being bad to worse, is what I was saying earlier, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. In essence, Paul is saying, I don't care what everyone else is saying. I don't care what the world says you need in order to be happy and whole. Stay the course, Christian. Stay the course and continue. You've seen me do it. You've seen me teach it. You've watched me live it. Surely you can do it. There was this day uh, set aside when I was in, in college in Ithaca, New York. I think it was at the end of finals week, if I remember correctly. But it was a day for basically everybody in the school to party, get as drunk and high as possible. Now, my university, it was like set on this huge hill or mountainside. Anyone from there would laugh at me if I said mountainside, but it was big. Uh, I kind of lived right at the bottom of it, right near the street where all of this debauchery and partying took place. And I just remember that morning, that day, uh, I was planning to meet a guy at the campus center, so up the hill, to study the Bible. So I get my shoes on and I begin heading up that hill. And I just remember so clearly just running into this massive flood of college students heading down this hill. Like so many people saying this thing and that thing, wearing this kind of clothing and that kind of clothing, smelling like this and that kind of substance. And for like 15 minutes as the stampede of people are making their way down, And honestly, not to prop myself up or anything like that, just by the grace of God, I just remember being the only one walking up that hill. And it was just so crazy for me. It's like a fish swimming upstream. It's so sad and harrowing, friends. And I think this is the kind of imagery, this is the kind of thing Paul is drawing up here in chapter three. He's saying, look, this life will get hard. Like I said earlier, privileged Christianity will not be a thing. He's saying everyone is looking to construct their identities apart from God. And they're going to tell you, you have to think like them. And they're going to tell you, you have to believe like them. And do what they do. 
and approve of what they demand approval of. And in some cases, you may literally be the only one who holds fast to the truth. But Christian, dear brother and sister, I exhort you, press on, continue. Because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be thought poorly of, will be disliked, maybe even hated by those who actually, you know, don't even take the time to get to know you. Maybe even abandoned, like Paul in prison, or fired from your employer, or mistreated by those you thought you could trust. And in the same way Christ warmed them, and Paul warmed them about what they would face, Christ has surely warned us about what we will face, church. It's as Calvin put it, you cannot detach Christ from his cross. And that struggle we feel in the day in and the day out, listen to this, I saw a tweet the other day that just cut me. It says, many of us have no trouble choosing heaven over hell but some of us have much trouble choosing heaven over earth. And notice the personal touch throughout here. He says, my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience. And again, you've seen it in me, dear Timothy. You know who you've learned it from. But then right here, it's not only just who you learned it from, but also where you've learned it from, which brings us to verse 15 and 16. It says, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's the scriptures which are going to give Timothy his source uh, of strength to continue in the faith. And of course, it's the scriptures which will be ours as well. Because as it says here, all scripture is breathed out by God. His very word to teach us, to test us, to sift us, to correct us, to train us. Friends, the blueprint for faithfulness, 2 Timothy, definitely, but the blueprint for righteousness, for eternal salvation, the whole of the scriptures, the whole of the Holy Bible. And so as we read earlier today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We can't say we're Christians if we neglect his word, church. And likewise, we can't say we're Christians if we refuse to listen and obey his word. That's like saying, I love you. I just never want to see you or talk to you. And by the way, I actually don't really care what you have to say. Oftentimes, these sort of attitudes or negligence towards the scriptures actually serve as clear indications that those exhibiting them have already failed to understand and avoid the pitfalls and the lies of this world have already given in to them. They won't be taught. They definitely won't be corrected by them. Friends, the scriptures serve as the benchmark to our lives. They recalibrate us to the wisdom and the love of God and to the world around us in light of him. In the scriptures, get this, we have the very breath of God the same breath that spoke all things into existence and calls you and I by name. And while I don't think this text is primarily like a defense of inspiration or inerrancy or the reliability of the Bible, which of course we're all for, um, even for our brief education and edification, let's visit there for a moment. Why do we believe the scriptures? You ever asked that? How can we trust the Bible? Well, really quick, if I were to boil it down, think of it as like the headings on a bunch of collapsible menus. You could click into these literally thousands of times for more helpful and trustworthy information. But if you just want the landmarks and the milestones, I'll put it this way. Start with the Old Testament. Scholars are very confident 
we have the right Hebrew scriptures. Just about every reputable scholar. So our Old Testaments. So take the Old Testament, and just not, not just the Old Testament, but the very Old Testament that Jesus believed, that Jesus had, and that Jesus ascribed all full divine authority to. The very words of God that Jesus then went on to equate himself to. Jesus then proceeds to teach on the gospel, the kingdom, and the church before choosing, authorizing, and commissioning his apostles to teach all that he's commanded them. Okay, you tracking with me? Then Jesus says, close to his departure, that he will send us his very spirit to guide these apostles into all truth in the writing of the New Testament scriptures. And so from there, the apostles and their associates affirm one another's authority, teaching, and writings, and the church proceeds to acknowledge and accept those writings as authoritative. And in the centuries since, despite the ongoing attacks from opposition, through rigorous study, text criticism, artifacts and translations, partnering with the very self-authenticating nature of them, we can confidently say we truly do have the words of God, church. The truth of God containing the wisdom of God, revealing the love of God in the gospel. Which is why the emphasis here isn't so much on the defense of the scriptures as it is a handbook for how to continue in the faith. How many of us try to make it through a week without eating? How many of us try to make it through a day without our phones? Yet how many of us try to make it through our lives without a complete and utter dependence on every promise of God's word? Remember I asked at the outset, what does it look like to navigate this life and this world faithfully? How are we to persevere in the step-by-step, day-by-day, and year-by-year of the Christian life? And what this text shows us is that we need to understand our surroundings, friends. Avoid the hazards and continue in what we have learned. Think of Joanna, again, walking to the car. Understanding what's around her. Understanding what she encounters. I know you. I know what you're doing, little aunt. I know why you're here. I don't need to be afraid of you then avoiding and staying away from that which would seek to harm you and harm your faith, and then continuing on in faithfulness to the life God has called you to. Friends, we're witnessing a moral decay around us with our very eyes. Because of God's word, we know what to look out for, and we have his very word and his spirit to guide and lead us home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, what a privilege it is to gather, to sing, to pray, and to hear your word. We ask that you would press the truths of this passage deep into our hearts, that we would remember them six weeks, six months, six years, 60 years from now, and hold fast to them in the road ahead. Give us your wisdom to better understand the devil and his schemes and the strength to be able to respond in a way that you would have us, Lord. We love you. Come quickly. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.